Alright guys, so, in our own life situations, I've been wondering about this all day. How can we make sure that we have the bigger picture, just the bigger picture? What does it mean to live the bigger picture of life? What does it mean to have the bigger picture of God and what this world is and how God in this world is supposed to interact with us? And how does having that bigger picture affect how we're going to live today? And um, that's why right now we'll be looking particularly at uh, Joshua chapter 1 and chapter 2. So, background, um, story so far, Joshua and the Israelites, and the you know, those are the people of God, they're on the verge of something big. The previous generation of God's people, um, they're the ch children of Israel, they have been rescued from Egypt under the leadership of Moses. They'd seen miraculous events and signs in the wilderness, but at that point in which they were about to enter the promised land, fear was what got the best of them. They let fear get the best of them. So they stopped trusting God. They were all complaining. They were rejecting his clear promises of faith. And they forfeited all of their opportunities to make any inheritance, which is the promised land. That entire generation died in the wilderness. But all during that time, the Israelites were led by Moses. And for most of the time, Moses' second in charge was a young man named Joshua. Now, if you look at Numbers, there are 12 spies that are sent into the land, and of those two, only of those 12, only two came back and told them, this is good, we can do it, because God is faithful, and he will enable us. One of those men was Joshua, and the other was Caleb. And at the end of Deuteronomy, where we read that Moses had died, and Joshua, Moses' second son in charge, was the new leader of the Israelites, Joshua was the one, not Moses, Joshua was the one who would lead the people into the promised land. We find that. So, you sit and wonder, well, how is Joshua going to do it if God first called Moses to do it? Well, you know, how will he be able to do it? The reasons for the fears that they had back whenever they had checked out the land 40 years before are still there. Like, there's still plenty of reason to be afraid. Land is, the land is scary looking. The there's still a river to cross. There's still people who are big and scary, and there's cities that need to be forfeited, and the cities have walls all the way around them. So imagine being you, being in Joshua's like shoes, and facing all of that. And Moses was the one who had always led the people. So here's how Deuteronomy 34, 10 and 11 describes Moses. It reads, since then no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all of those miraculous signs and wonders of the Lord, sent him into Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to all of his officials in this whole land. For no one has ever shown mightier power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in sight of all of Israel. I don't know about you, but I think that's a really impressive summary of who Moses was. But now he's dead. Now, talk about stepping in the big shoes. Now we see why Joshua was scared, and how is he going to do what Moses, the great servant of the Lord, failed to do? And that's what brings us up to where we are in Joshua chapter 1 and chapter 2. So, bigger picture of the story. In the light, all of these are seemingly reasonable fears. This is what he says to Joshua in verses 1 through 9. Ready? Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass 
that the Lord spake unto Joshua, son of Nun, Moses, his minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan thou, and all this people, unto the land which I do give unto them, even unto the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that I have given unto you already, as I have said unto Moses. From the wilderness, and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites, and unto the great sea, toward going down to the sun, shall be your coast. There shall be not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and of good courage, for unto this people for unto this people shalt thou divide an inheritance of land, which I swear unto the fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but shalt mediate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and thou shalt have good success. So, basically God's saying, look, Moses is dead, so get ready to cross over the other side of the river. The point is that Moses is dead, but God's promises are not. They live on. They are continuous. As long as God is there, his promises are there also. God is an unchanging, loving God. His promises live on. There is no loss of any momentum in anything that he says for his, because his will is always done. Because it's never about the faithfulness of Moses. It was always about the faithfulness of God and his promises to his people. Not what Moses was called to carry out, but what God was going to have carried out through who he chooses. God made promises all the way back in Genesis. In Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, go to the land I will show you. And then in chapter 15, he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur and to the Chaldeans to give you this land to take into possession. This is the same land that the Israelites are about to go into. This is the same exact land. So way back in Genesis, when he's talking to Abraham, he's promising the same land that he's promising Joshua and that he promised Moses. It's still the same land. Now we just we just sit and wait for the promises to become reality. God will tell you, look, I have this for you, but he's not going to be, he, you can't get nothing unless you work for it. God gives you so many opportunities, but so many times people mess on opportunities and let fear, hate, regret, sorrow, depression, um, bills, you know, sickness. They let all of these things influence who they're called to be by God. But with God, anything is possible. In these verses, we read God's words of encouragement to the leader who would take God's people in. He says, be strong and courageous. And again, be strong and very courageous. He says it the whole time, Joshua. You don't say that to someone who's feeling particularly good and strong. If someone already felt strong and courageous, you wouldn't have to say, be strong and courageous. Because they already are. God said that to Joshua because he knew Joshua was scared out of his wits. He was someone who needed to hear these words. Be strong and courageous. Joshua, understandably, had certain fears. Like he had... Anyone, any humane person would be terrified. 
of what Joshua is being called to do by God. It's completely normal. God will never give you anything, any test, any trial. God will never give you anything that you cannot do. Granted, he doesn't expect you to do it alone because everything done, in go done good is done in the will of God with God. Another thing that comes through here is that the Lord understands his people. He understands that the fears of his people, like he understands the fears they have. He speaks to every one of them about every one of their fears and reminds the Israelites of his promises throughout the entire book of Joshua. In the situations that are happening, he's always telling Joshua, he says, Joshua, I will be with you. I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. What wonderful words for any generation to hear. You know how encouraging that would be? Like, after, like, you know, you're walking through and you're like, oh, the last, the last generation died because they were complaining. But my God, he tells me he'll never forsake me. He will never leave me. He will always be with me. How encouraging. How encouraging that is. That should be like that. That would that's a wonderful reassurance to Joshua that the Lord was with him and that he is completely capable of doing what he's called to do by God. Interestingly, if you were to read back in Exodus, you'll find that Moses needed the very same assurance whenever the Lord called him to lead his people out of Egypt. God says, You can trust me, I will never leave you. He told Moses that. He told him that. Trust me, I will never leave you. God never leaves any of us. Well, what kind of sort of trust does that even look like? See, it's just a matter of thinking, I must trust God. I must. It, it's not a matter of training our minds. No, trusting God is obeying God. Trusting God means doing what he says. If you trust God, you will do what he says. See, we, look, we have a look at the verses 7 through 8, and the Lord says, Be careful to obey the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn it off to the right or to the left, that ye may be successful wherever you go. Don't let this book of the Lord depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that ye may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will become prosperous and respectful and successful. Joshua is instructed by the Lord God. To obey the law. That's what that is. He's told to take God at his every word, at every point, at every moment. Not to miss any easy bits, but get every single part. Basically, God's saying, do what I say, even if it seems out of the ordinary. Just do what I say. Never let my promises leave your mouth. Never let my law leave your mouth. Because as we said before, trust means obeying God. The Lord's instructions to Joshua about how to conquer Jericho are very unusual. It's a very unusual strategy of marching and shouting. But trusting God's means, we're going to do what he says, even though it doesn't make sense in our little minds. Even when it seems we could come up with something better or safer or faster or more efficient. The Lord will do what he says to do. Whether we think that we can find a better way or not, his way will also always work. We must believe him and obey, or things are going to go downhill, f like for everybody. When God refers to the law, he's not just referring to the Ten Commandments either. He's actually referring to the entire word of God. The entire story of his faithfulness up to this point. What we refer to as the first five books of the Bible. From these books we learn God's faithfulness, we learn of his character. 
we get to see his character. You know, straight from Genesis when he's walking through the gardens of Eden with Adam and Eve, all the way up to the point to where Moses is dead. It, his character is shown through Abraham, like through the trials he put Abraham on. You know, through the trial that Moses went on. It, we see his character. We learn of his faith. And meditating on these books leads to knowing God better and understanding his ways more clearly. When you understand the God of the Bible, you are more likely to obey him. Just like with your parents or other any other authority, whenever you learn to understand them better and you are able to comprehend the way they teach and the way they instruct you, you are more likely to listen. You're not just going to listen to some random dude who walks up and tells you to do push-ups. But if you've known the guy and you've studied the guy and you know what he's there for and how he's there and what his intentions are with you, whether good or bad, it gives you more of an influence to do it. Because you have face-to-face, heart-to-heart time with that person. God wants that face, God wants that heart-to-heart time with you. He wants to connect. When you know him better, you will know that he's faithful and you're more likely to trust him. One of my favorite pastors, uh, Ralph Davis, he writes, and I quote, constant, careful absorbing of the word of God leads to the obedience of it. So as Joshua prepares to lead the Israelites back into the promised land, the Lord reminds them of the promises he made all the way back there to remain true. Every single promise God has made is true. Whether anybody on this planet tells you they are or aren't, your God says it's true. There is no reason to be terrified, and there is every reason to be able to trust him. Because without him, you wouldn't be here. That's the bigger picture like Joshua needed to have. That's the bigger picture he needed to see. Now in verses to 10, 15, we read what Joshua says. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass thou the host, and command the people, saying, Prepare thou vic victuals, for within three days ye shall pass over this Jordan, to go into the promises of the land, and possess the land which ye the Lord your God had giveth you to possess. And to the Reubenites, and go into the Gedites, and to half the tribe of Manasseh, spake Joshua, saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord God, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God hath given you rest, and hath given you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you onto this side of the Jordan. But you will pass before your brethren armed, almighty men of valor, and help them. Until the Lord God have given your brethren rest, as he has given all of you, and they also have possessed the land which the Lord your God had given them, then ye shall return into the land of your possession, and enjoy it, which Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you on this side of the Jordan, toward the sunrise. So basically what he's saying is, he's going to tell them, pass it in the midst of the camp, prepare your provisions, because in three days, you're going to pass over this Jordan, and you're going to take possession of all the land that the Lord your God is giving you. He's rallying the troops, and in 12 through 15, he speaks specifically to what is described as the two and a half tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. These two and a half tribes have already been like located on the land of the eastern side of the Jordan River. So danger 
was of the two and a half tribes would say, hey, we've already got what we came for, so see you later. Good luck. God be with you, but we're staying over here. That, that'd be the bad route. But Joshua reminded these tribes that they're part of one people. All these, all these, the, the half of Manasseh, the Gadites and the Reubenites, they're all part of one people. He's telling them, God will be with you. But we're, God, God's going to be with you. They already got their inheritance. God has already said, this is yours. All they have to do is just go and take it. It's that easy. They could walk over and just say it's mine and it's theirs because God said so. They were expected to go across the river with their brothers and fight with their people. The important thing there is that all the tribes were to be united as they took possession of the land. They were all to be united as they took possession. So now we've got the Lord God speaking to Joshua. And then we've got Joshua speaking to the people. And now we've got the people speaking to Joshua. Have a look at what they say. Whatever you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. At face value, this response sounds beautiful. It sounds amazing. That's what any leader would want to hear. Everyone's fully on board with you, but think back to the days of Moses. Israel didn't have a good track record back then. Hearing the Israelites say this to Joshua was like hearing the little boy say on the first day of school, I'm going to be good for my new teacher, just like I was for Miss Smith last year. When in reality, he had been the naughtiest little boy in Miss Smith's class, putting gum up his nose. You know, hearing these words, it's not going to bode well. But regardless of their history, the Israelites' intention was to obey Joshua. They recognized that he was their leader under God. They knew that. They could see it. That was, the very, that, that was very important for them to acknowledge as they entered the land. So the people of God were ready to do what their leader commanded, and their leader had been assured of God's presence in the light of his promises. The scene is set for going to the land. They are so ready. Now in chapter 2, here we are. We read that entering the land involves another spy story. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out into Shittim with two, with two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. So they went and they entered the house of him, of her. It's a prostitute's house. It may seem like sending spies in the first reveals like it lack like it kind of looks like a lack of trust on Joshua's part because God said it's already yours, but he has to send spies. Like he's testing God's promises. But the Bible doesn't actually make a comment either way on that. So the spies go in and enter the house of the prostitute, a brothel in other words. The Bible doesn't make a comment about that choice either. It only says that the spies went and stayed there. End of discussion. It says no more of it. If we could tell that be the choice of a good strategy, then whatever place lots of men came and went, a place where the two strangers wouldn't look suspicious, then it's totally suitable. Perhaps we should probably give them the benefit of a doubt. However, these men aren't the best spies in the world, are they? Right after the, they learn, we learn that they stayed at Rob's house, we read, The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. 
so much for traveling under the radar. The king's messengers went to Ech, went to Rahab and he said, Yes, they live here, but they've gone now. You better head out that way and you might catch them. Rahab then hid and the Israelite spies on her roof. So she hid the spies like up on her roof to make sure that they aren't going to get found. Why would she do that? Verses 8-14 through 14 are central to this passage. They tell us why Rahab did what she did and confirms what we've already read in chapter 1. Look what Rahab says to the spies. I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of this land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up in the water of the Red Sea before when you come out of Egypt. And what you did do to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and to Og, whom you have devoted of destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and of the earth beneath. The God of all. That is an amazing confession of faith. That almost leaves me speechless. Rahab, did these, Rahab hid these spies because she knew who she was dealing with. The one who is Lord over the spies. She knew she was dealing with God. She was dealing with the God of heaven and earth, who had given that land to the Israelites already. She had comprehended and knew that and believed it. It was a done deal. Through her actions, she demonstrated an amazing faith in God. She knew that he would do exactly what he said he would do. It's kind of ironic because the person who really demonstrated this kind of trust was... A pagan harlot, a prostitute. A pagan harlot prostitute acted in the light of who God is. It's funny how God can change you when you have no desire to be connected with him any time before then, isn't it? She immediately knew that she was dealing with mighty men of God. Who are promised land that they haven't even stepped in yet. And declared it. Rob's faith is described in the New Testament's Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. Her faith is also mentioned in James 2. I'll repeat that. Hebrews 11. And it's mentioned in James 2. As something to which we could be aspired to. Something we can be encouraged by. This pagan prostitute had somehow had to come to understand God. The God of heaven and earth. Who demonstrated his mighty power on behalf of his people to defeat the Amorites on the eastern side of the river. She understood exactly who God was. And she sought his protection. She, she looked for his protection. A, pros, a pagan prostitute sought God's protection. Because she knew she was dealing with the true, almighty, living God of heaven and earth. It wasn't a, it wasn't a matter of correct belief, but desperate need. Saving faith is always like this. It never stops without brooding over the nature or activity of God, but it always runs to take refuge under its wings. Under God's wings, you have refuge. It is a surprising faith in an almighty and merciful God that is represented here. This pagan prostitute is one of the three women named in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. She became part of God's people. 
she met two mighty men of God, and bang, in a matter of minutes, she became part of God's people, because she knew that she was dealing with mighty men of God, of the true and living God. As we continue in the chapter 2, we read that the spies were able to escape through the window of Rob's house. And before they left, they promised her that she and her family would be safe. And whenever the Israelites came back and attacked Jericho, and that they had made their way all the way back to Shittim, and to t telling Joshua everything that had happened to them, in contrast to the first spy attempt in Numbers 13 or 14, we read this in verse 24. The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear before us. Can you repeat that? Melting. They are melting in fear before us. Now it seems that the Israelites didn't need this reassurance to know that God was. They didn't need it to know that God was with them. He had already said, I'm with you, I will never forsake you. It's, it's here. But because of the faith of God's people is often so weak, our Father and God in heaven constantly had to stoop down he constantly stoops down for all of us to make us feel reassured and to help us to be sure of everything he says all of his words he constantly reminds us through things every day so many signs of god reassuring you that his word is true how wonderful of how wonderful he is and what we see here when the spies give their report is just that So, what's the main point of these two chapters of Joshua? The truth that resonates throughout the book of Joshua, and certainly what we are to see in these opening chapters, is the faithfulness of God to his promises. The Lord God will do what he says he will do. That's the big picture. Therefore, his people are called to trust him, to be strong, courageous, and obey him. There is no need to fear and every reason. To have great assurance that God will do exactly what he says he will do every single time. God says to his people as they're about to cross over the Jordan, Here is your inheritance. Take it. And live as my people in the places I have given you. I'm sorry, Thirsty. Yes, that will take courage, but don't be afraid. For I will never leave you. You will not be forsaken. So now you might be sitting there asking yourself, well, what's all this got to do with me, homie? It's a very different situation for us here today. I agree. We can look at this from two perspectives. First thing I saw was in the terms of so what on the passage. First thing I noticed was God doesn't change. God says to his people who are now those in Christ, here's your inheritance, the inheritance that comes when we are adopted to his family through Jesus Christ, his son. Take it and live as my people in the light of your inheritance. I know sometimes it will feel difficult to trust in God. It'll feel scary. I uh, can't tell you how many times. Like, I remember when I was younger, if I was in a restaurant, I'd be too afraid to pray. Especially if I was somewhere alone. I'd be too afraid to pray whenever I ate because I feel like people would silently judge me. That's how I felt when I was little. But God says to take what he's giving you as his people and live in the light of your inheritance. This is definitely worth counting the cost to follow Christ.
Ask yourself if it's worth putting aside your own needs to serve and live for God. These chapters remind us of who God is and who it is that we serve. The answer to these questions are yes, it is worth it. It's 100% worth it. If, if God is for you, who can stand against you? God wants us to see life from His perspective. A perfect perspective. The end is guaranteed. Remember Jesus' word on the cross. He said, it is finished. Knowing the one who promises that he will never forsake his people brings a wonderful and deep-seated confidence in the future. And even in the imminent future, whenever it seems unclear, scary, disappointing, we know that God won't change. No matter how long you wait on God to change, he won't. But the situation hasn't changed. For us, the promises of God don't involve literal land and going into battle. The writer of Hebrews writes to Christians who are in need of encouragement to, pres to preserve and hold on to God's truth, onto the truth and the living word of God. What he says draws a parallel between what Joshua did and what Jesus has accomplished over the cross. For if Joshua had given them the rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That's Hebrews 4.8. Hebrews 4.8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The writer of Hebrews is looking at what happened to Joshua, and he wants the people of God in Christ to look at their own inheritance, an inheritance that, as Paul says, can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us. That inheritance, let me repeat, will never perish, never spoil and never fade away and it is kept in heaven for us that inheritance is in heaven for us our inheritance is the kingdom of god his holy kingdom is your inheritance he says you have this you just got to take it your inheritance is heaven you just have to go and get it Going and getting it, you have to ask yourself constantly, every second, is this worth going and getting? Ladies and gentlemen, do you think heaven is worth going and getting? What we read in Joshua actually points us forward to every next day and everything beyond every next day. It points us forward to know and to think and to challenge ourselves and to believe in what God has promised you. Believe in that inheritance of the kingdom of God. Those of us who are in Christ who know the grace of God that comes in Christ's mercy, have great assurance in this life and in the next lives to come. The words that we read in Joshua, don't be afraid, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you, are for us as well. Those weren't just for Joshua. Remember, promises of God live forever. We need to keep hearing those words. It's like water for thirsty dirt. Seeds don't grow unless you water them. Moses needed to hear those words. Joshua needed to hear them. The Israelites needed to hear them. And we need to hear them too. Whether we think so or not, we got to hear those. And when we hear God's promise to never forsake us, we understand them in a much bigger way. We know that the reality of Christ dying on the cross for us, we know the reality of that. We know that the Holy Spirit indwells in our hearts. It indwells in us. This promise of God is just as true 
for Joshua and Moses as it is for you and me. This truth applies to all facets of our lives. Here in Hebrews 13, it says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. How can we be content with what we have? Because God has said that we will never leave us or forsake us. The writer of Hebrews says that we can say with confidence that the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid what man do to me, of what man can do to me. If God is with me, who can stand against me? These words are taken right out of Exodus and Deuteronomy and Joshua. They are all there. Though the immediate context in Hebrews is around money, it can be applied to so many different things. There's no need to be afraid of anything because you have God right at your side, dwelling in you. Dwelling in your heart. There's every reason to trust. Because God says, I am enough. He looks at you. He touches you and tells you, I am enough. He's enough in the loneliness of singlehood. He is enough in the difficulty of marriage. He is enough in the busyness of exhaustion of motherhood whenever it starts to wear you down. He is enough whenever you can't pay your bills. He is enough whenever you can't get to work on time. He is enough whenever you're being bullied and cyberbullying through school and thinking about suicidal things. He is enough whenever you feel about hurting yourself. He is enough when you feel like you're not strong enough to do it. He is enough whenever you're going through family problems that you don't think you can dig a way out of. He is enough whenever you have unspoken prayers, prayers that you are too afraid to speak. He is enough. He is always enough. That is an unchanging promise of God. He will never, ever put you through anything that he doesn't think that you are not capable of. Because he is always there and he is enough. And if you have God dwelling with you, nothing ever thought of could, could stand against you. He's enough when the concerns about the future overwhelm us. We know the one who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. You know who I'm talking about. We're, talk we're talking about God. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So there's no need to be afraid of the future, no matter how unclear it is. That's the message I get from Joshua, chapter 1 and 2. As we looked at these opening chapters of Joshua, we're reminded that God is faithful. And he's always true to his promises. That's who he is. God is love. What should we do in the light of all of our misunderstandings? We should trust him. That's what we should do in the light of misunderstanding. We should trust him. And what does that look like in the day-to-day -day knowing that we're not forsaken and that the Lord is faithful? Remember, faithfulness to God looks like obedience. It means we're taking him at his word and doing exactly what his word says. It means preserving in prayer for those we love who do not yet know the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ. It means being prepared to speak and interact in ways that are contrary to the world's priorities. Because we know that this world is not all there. We know it. There are so many who have never heard the name of Jesus. But at the same time, that this world is not all that's there. You know that there's a bunch more to be found. And as it is said for Joshua, this means meditating on God's words 
and what God says. Remember, he's telling you, be strong and courageous. Trust me. Do what I say and know that you will not be forsaken. I want to thank you so much for listening to me today. I want to thank you all for joining me as well. You have a blessed morning or night or afternoon. And I will see you some other time. Goodbye.